When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's easy to hear your favorite artist on WFPK from wherever you are. Listen on your smart speaker, live stream from our website at WFPK.org, from Louisville Public Media. Consequence Podcast Network. Hey, welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith with the interview series presented by WFPK at WFPK.org. Consequence of Sound and the Consequence Podcast Network. Thanks so much as always for checking out the series. Please do subscribe. I do three new interviews every single week, so it's a great way to keep up with all of your favorite artists, discover some new ones. You can get us at all the uh, usual podcast places along with YouTube for the video versions. Uh, new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I'm Kyle Meredith. Today, my guest, Adam Duritz of the Counting Crows. I say it in a sing-songy way because I'm so excited. Counting Crows, easily one of my top five favorite bands of all time. Uh, Recovering the Satellites, their second record, it vies for maybe my favorite album. If not my favorite, it it just trades back and forth with maybe one or two other records. I do love this band. I I love what he does. I'm so happy that they're back with brand new music, the first brand new music in several years. It's called, uh, well, it's all under the umbrella of Butter Miracle Suite Volume 1. And it's sort of a rock opera. All the tracks, it's four songs, so it's technically an EP, and all the songs, it's nonstop. They all just go straight into the next one. So Adam and I are going to talk about uh, writing what is essentially a small rock opera and is being burnt out on the music business uh, prior to this newfound inspiration that kind of led to these songs. We're also going to about him channeling the Who musically and lyrically within it, if you're uh, trying to train spot in there. And he'll tell us about the importance of music in his life and how uh, disassociative disorder directs his writing. That's something he battles with. Adam's also going to tell us about what it's like hearing so many artists from the 2000s emo scene, naming him as a prime influence. There were like tribute albums and everything else. And I want to hear about Recovering the Satellites because it's the 25th anniversary. And if you'll remember, we did get a deluxe edition years back of August and everything after. So I want to hear why we haven't so far. And as it turns out, uh, the label has lost some stuff. And of course, there was a Universal Records fire that potentially destroyed much of what was left. But he hasn't given up hope yet. And there's a reason for that. So let's do this. Kyle Meredith with Counting Crows. Hey, Kyle. How you doing? That's a real statement, too. Um... I think I, I was talking to my wife and, and even my son in the past week as I was thinking about this interview. And I, I said at one point, I think I can tell most of my life stories by th- your albums, like what I was listening to at the time when you were releasing your records. So, you know, you put out some good songs through the years. It's compliments. <laughs> I, I'm 
I, I'm very proud of them, and and that's the best thing you can say about people's music is when it becomes the <clears throat> music's one of those things that's different from all the other art forms. It really does become the soundtrack to your memories. You know, you, our memories get really tied in the, with the music we were living with during those periods. It, it's a big deal. You know, yeah. I, I have to do a lot of interviews about that. So when it happens, I know it happens to me. It's like a music geek. You know, uh, when it happens to other people with my music, that's that's one of the best things you can hear anyone say, you know. Well, now I get to add another chapter into that. Because, as I said, Counting Crows are back. We've got the uh, the Butter Miracle Sweet One. So I'm hoping that means of many sweets or, or something. But At least two. <laughs> at least two. Yeah. When I heard this, and I hit play before I even knew what I was getting into. I was told it was an EP and that was it. And then starting to realize exactly as a suite, I'm like, oh my God, it's it's a little mini rock opera in a way. And it seems so obvious because I feel like you guys have been building up to something like this for a long time. Like ever since, you know, I put some CDs back here. Ever since I heard Round Here on Across a Wire on that disc two from the 10 spot and just hearing, you know, and then seeing you guys live dozens of times through the years, how you'll just build out these songs. Like it feels like it's been leading up to this for a long time. Where did the idea come from? Why did you all decide to write in this way this time? Well, I think, you know, there's there are things we've been doing live with improvisations in the middle of songs, giving songs kind of different movements over the years. And I realized a few years ago that, you know, about maybe 10 years ago, that, that I had never really tried that to incorporate that in the writing of a song. And I really, that, that was a lot of what went into uh, Palisades Park for Somewhere on Wonderland, was the idea of taking that thing we do live but putting it into the actual construction of the song itself. So it wasn't just a live thing, but, you know. This one came apart kind of differently. I think I was really burnt out for a while on the, the music business. Not playing so much, but just the experience of having to work in it. And uh, I hadn't written for a while. And, and, you know, one of the artifacts of my mental illness, of the dissociation, is I don't, I don't always accumulate, accumulate things. I... I I tend to not retain stuff, and I, I can I forget, especially specifically how to play piano. Every time between records, when I haven't played much for a while, I I'd, I have to kind of reteach myself to play, and it begins very rudimentarily. And I was spending a lot of time on a friend's farm out in the west of England over the last few years, and I had been out there a lot. And summer of 2019, it was actually right after I shaved my dreads. I got to England and shaved my head, and uh, I was living out on his farm. Sometimes with my girlfriend, sometimes with my friend and his family, but a lot of the time completely by myself, miles from anyone. And uh, I wanted to play, and I, I rented a piano. I had a friend bring a keyboard down from London when he came down for the weekend at one point, and I started playing when I was there by myself. And I wrote this song called Tallgrass. And, and as I was finishing it, I was kind of playing it back to myself, and I was playing the end of the song. It kind of goes back and forth. I don't know why. I don't know why. And it's back and forth on these two chords. And I changed to a different pair of chords. And I liked the way it sounded. And this whole new melody came into my head. And I just started singing, Bobby was a kid from around the town. And I thought, oh, that's a, to that's a completely different song. That's not actually part of this song. That's the different song. And I started working on it for a couple minutes. And then all of a sudden, I just sort of stopped. And it hit me. Wow, what if I wrote a whole series of songs where the end of one was the beginning of the next and that would be really interesting that would be really cool that sounds exciting that actually gets me excited about writing you know 
Because like tall grass is very a little dirge like when it first starts. It gets very melodic. But part of that is just because I couldn't play very well. That's about as much as I could do when I first started writing it. You know, and a, a day later when I'm finishing it, I've got a lot more facility. And then by the time I get to what becomes elevator boots, I can sort of play piano again a little bit. And the whole that got me really excited though. And when I so everything after that was kind of geared towards that. When I wrote elevator boots, I you know, push the ending of that towards what became the beginning of uh, Angel of 14th Street. And when I finished Angel of 14th Street, it made sure to wind up and crash down into the that starts off Bobby and the Rat Kings. The really wild thing about it, though, was, you know, this is the summer into the fall of 2019. So I've got this idea in my head. And when I sent the demos off to the band, I I played a little bit into the next song each time so they would see what what was this was going to go on. And uh, so I kind of explained the concept, but I couldn't hear it. It just only in my imagination, you know. And then we started recording in Brooklyn in uh, fe- late February of 2020 and for just a few weeks. And the plan was we would do that for a few weeks and then we would take like a two week break in early March and we would bring the other two guitar players in and we'd finish up. And as we were in the last couple of days of recording and we were 85% done with the record, just missing these guitar parts. We're watching the news and this, the COVID's coming in the country and watching. I remember specifically the president at the CDC making that talk about uh, why they were keeping people on ships because they didn't want them in the country to bring extra infections. I mean, so that's right where we were a couple days before we finished. So we took that two week break and, you know, the quarantine slammed right down in that right before we could get started again. So we couldn't finish the record and we sat there for like three months maybe four months uh, until sometime in July. And then we just got, got those other two guitar players to just record their things at home or with friends at their studios in California and in Seattle. Uh, and then uh, Immer and I live in New York, so we were already here. And my producer and engineer, they drove in from Chicago so they didn't have to get on a plane. And we all stayed at my house and I cooked for everybody so no one needed to go out. And we found a studio that was like a block away so we didn't have to take Ubers, we could just walk to work. And we laid those last guitar parts in and mixed the record. And that last day we were in there, you know, this has just been a product of my imagination all this time. And when we mixed it and finished the last mix, we cut the songs together. That's the first time I heard it. You know, you have this idea of something, but it's just in your imagination and you're holding it there for, you know, you've done all the work for it. You know, it's supposed to work. But when we, cut those things together and played the four songs. And the four of us sat there, or the three of us, because our engineer was gone by then. It was just the three of us. And we sat there in that room and listened to the suite. That's probably one of the most satisfying moments I've ever had in my career. I think because, I mean, to hold something that long without being able to hear it, and then to hear it, and it works. You know, it really works. It is like a world you get lost in. It is like the second side of Abbey Road. It is like a little op, like Tommy, you know, it, it uh, in a very, it's very different from all those, but it's four totally different songs that play like one song, and it, it really works. And I mean, I, I, it's hard for me right now. I'm really excited to have people hear Elevator Boots because I do love that song. But there's a part of me that just wants them to hear the suite. And you're the That's first cool guy thing. I've talked to today who's actually heard it. Oh, wow. Probably because you write for Consequence of Sound, too. But other than that, uh, the DJs, mostly radio stations, they don't just send the suite to, I guess, because mm-hmm. ha- none of them have heard it. And, I, you know, I'm kind of dying to hear what people think of the suite, you know, because 
that's what the thing, that's what I've been holding in my head. That's what I've been so proud of all this time. You know, we finished it and I sent it to all my friends who are musicians and like, look what we did. Cause I, I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of it. It's like the coolest thing I've ever done. And you know, I got these phone calls back from, you know, some of my best friends, like Chris Caraba from Dashboard, you know, me and him and Dave Leal Pepe from Gang of Youths and our friend Sean Barna, you know, we all pass songs back and forth to each other when, to, show, to keep each other abreast of what we're up to. Our friend Matt Susich, too, is a songwriter. You know, we, we actually, you know, so they had heard all this stuff, but not in this form, you know, and like, we're all so intimately involved with each other that way because we, you know, talk about it a lot and we're, we're all pretty close. And like those guys, getting it back from those guys, man, and that was like, that put me over the moon, you know. I'll tell you, I had um, I hit up a friend of mine who I knew was a big fan when Elevator Boots came out, and Chris he was talking about, it and I said, "It's a good song. You've got to hear it in the whole thing," and because it does, it makes so much more sense because it, it yeah. kind of does this. And I'll tell you, that guitar riff that you were talking about right before Bobby and the Rat Kings when he hears dun, dun dun, I started laughing because after all this mo, after all this time building up to this, I was like, "There's the Who." There's the who right there. And then you drop a My Generation line in there and I bust it out laughing. I'm like, yeah. oh, that is so perfect. You know, I, I when like those power chords, like to get to that wild, insane soloing at the end of uh, Angel of 14th Street and the way I, cause I didn't, I, I knew what it did musically, but I didn't write that out exactly that. And when Immer came up with that, no, 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 bum, bum, bum. Boy, when we all heard that in the studio, we all started laughing because it was so satisfying. And you know, the funny thing about the My Generation line is I didn't write it that way. I wrote it as my, the words, My Generation doesn't even have a name of its own, but I wasn't thinking the who thing, you know, I was just thinking about, it's kind of a joke with me because, you know, everyone talks Generation Z, Generation X, the millennials, and like, we never heard it. I, I, then the baby boomers before us, but like, I grew up in a generation that doesn't really have a generation. And I was just thinking about that. But when I started, when I got in the studio and started singing it, uh, when we were recording it, I was like, oh, wait, this is too good. My g generation. And I had, I did it about four different ways. Like my g generation, my g, -g, -g generation, my g, -g, 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 -g generation. I had a bunch of different versions of it that like hammered that point home. And I think I took, I don't remember what's it. I think it's the most subtle one in the end. It's just my g generation doesn't, it's pretty simple. Yeah. But uh, it felt good to have that little humor, especially in that song in the beginning. Cause there's lines in that song that are about that, like, edit and read it instead it said it you know i was like trying to write hip-hop lines right there what if you repeat a rhyme that many times in a sentence yeah i mean i i that, that part really cracked me up but we were too busy laughing from the power chords themselves you know like because there was just yeah it's really satisfying to get there into this like open up to those huge chords and then it just hits now thank god you did that that would have been a missed opportunity otherwise and uh and it was satisfying is the right word yeah getting there you know as the songwriter when you once you figured out that you could do this style you know that you weren't having to write these completely full like it seems to me it would be a little bit of um a breath less of a burden when you figured out oh i don't have to write the typical re repetition song, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, chorus, whatever. Because when you're writing in this style, it would seem like you can kind of just bail whenever you need to. Like if you get to a, a rough spot, you can go, I can go to another song. Well, yeah, but I mean, I, other than Tallgrass, <clears throat> they're very verse, chorus, verse, chorus in here. You know, these songs really do have like very distinctive, I can get lazy about choruses sometimes. I don't always care about writing. I, I write the words different every time. Like these, 
these songs really have choruses. Like that 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 elevator boots choruses, you know, like I really worked on those. But the weird thing about it was like I just they're so different all four of these songs. You know, I was really writing in almost like a British folk music, Nick Drakey vibe at the beginning for uh, Tall Grass, you know. And then when I got so excited when I started uh, playing Elevator Boots and I really wanted it to be this kind of glam, Mott the Hoople thing, which, you know, is a big, that's a big part throughout it with the guitars. I really wanted those, like, Immer and I talked about that, those Mott the Hoople, Mick Ronson-y guitars, you know. But then it was like, I remember being in the, my, in the, one of the guys who works on the farm, his pickup truck, we were going into town to buy some groceries one time. And I heard this new Bombay Bicycle Club song on the radio on the BBC. And it was just like, kind of, it was a little trancey and kind of dancey with a, a melody line on a keyboard. And it's weird. I went back to try and figure out what song that was, like, wait, like a few months ago, so a year later. Because I was curious, because it really did inspire Angel of 14th Street. And I can't find it. I mean, I know it's there. I know it's one of these songs, but none of them sounded anything like Angel of 14th Street. So I'm not sure. <laughs> but I remember very much that, like, the vibe, the kind of dance club vibe of this song is really what inspired me when I started Angel of 14th Street. But I can't find anything that sounds anything like it. So I don't know what it was. But, you know, it's like that's a whole different kind of set of inspirations than Mata Hoople. And then when I got to Bobby and the Rat Kings, it was kind of back to Mott the Hoople with a little, with a good solid taste of the Who, I guess, kind of in there. You know, like I just wanted power chords. I, I can sometimes re write really esoterically, and I, I don't always do the simple things. And I really wanted to just like big chords where someone can go, gah, 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 you know, like in the, or I wanted people to play air guitar when they hear it, you know? <laughs> It's different than all the air, air piano that we've played in the past. We finally get that yeah. moment. That, <laughs> I guess we get that little bit of hanging around, but it's not exactly the same thing. I get what you're saying there. Lyrically then, did it make sense for you? Did, did you need to tell a complete story from front to back then if it's working like that? I mean, does it? No, not really. I didn't think about it at all. I mean, I think they kind of do in a way. I was having a lot of trouble when I had to do the... Uh, track by track for this recording because I couldn't think of anything to say about them. They just kind of seem like what they are. I mean, their stories are really different. The only two that really are related in a certain way is I do think that Elevator Boots and Bobby and the Rat Kings very much are different sides of the same coin. They're, they're telling a story about like the how important music is in my life and how important being a music geek is. And one of them kind of tells the prescription because music has affected my life in some two very different ways. One, I've been a huge music fan and a geek all my life where I just, I'm obsessed with music. And on the other hand, I actually do it professionally. That's my job and I, I've done it. I make it myself and other people relate to me that way. Like I relate to my favorite musicians, you know? And uh, so I think that uh, Elevator Boots really talks about that from the perspective of the guy in the band. And Bobby and the Rat Kings really talks about it from the perspective of the guy in love with the band who like has had these moments in his life, these very moments that I told the story of in those songs that were very like soundtracked by music he loved, even though it's a fictional band. But like, you know, I, I think overall in some ways it tells a story about me getting back into being interested in playing music again, but that was not an intention. I never really think about things like that. I don't think about themes when I write. Whenever I try to do that, it comes out really trite. But I, you know, I do tend to, you can look at a record later on and look back on it and see there always are themes because you know it's your life and you're writing about how you feel about things and that changes from year to year and on this given record you can see themes in them but they're never really intentional for me uh 
But I, you know, and I don't really know how to talk. I learned to talk about my records and what I think of my records while I'm doing interviews for my records because I'm kind of forced to. And then I, that makes me think about it. And I come up with ideas because I don't think about it otherwise. They have to hold a central truth every song. They really do. They have to hold. But you know that when you're writing it, you know, and you, and you just make sure it stays true to where you are. But I don't know that I know what any of them are about thematically until I, I look back on it much later. It's, it's interesting, too, because as a fan of the Counting Crows, of your writing specifically, one of the things that we get to do is a lot of train spotting in your songs. You know, the lines that you put here that reference the song that's, you know, from the last album or 25 years ago or something like that. You know, I wrote down in tall grass. I don't even know if you mean to do this, but of course, as the fan now, my eyes are open looking for these things when you say, can you see me? Because I'm changing. Two songs instantly come to mind. Have you seen me lately and all my friends? You know, are those things yeah. running through your mind as you're doing them? And there was also a part of like uh, the outro, I think, of Miller's Angels that was like that. I don't know, but I think that like how we perceive ourselves and how other people perceive us, uh, and especially being a famous person, how different those two things can be. It, it was inevitably going to be a theme of my writing because I've lived it specifically. You know, like I've had a very skewed view of myself. And when you're dissociative, a big artifact of that is that you look at yourself from a distance a lot, that you have a, a lot of a really hard time being in your body, that like a lot of your view of yourself is, is and other people is from a distance. And, you know, so I think that has been a common theme of concern. I, I, I uh, I know that there's the outro of Miller's Angels has that can't you see me because I'm dreaming. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's mm -hmm. like it's something I've improved a lot in Round Here and Rain King probably. Um, I don't know that I thought about that at all um, when I was writing Tall Grass. I was wondering what you were going to say just now when you were saying uh, you know you spotted something, but like yeah, but that is in those those songs that thematically is it, it kind of that's what I mean about like you're you're bound to have themes because you wrote them all that year and that's a year for you where you felt a certain way and you're bound to have themes because it's your life, you know? And so things are gonna crop back up again, whether it's the name Elizabeth or Maria or, or it's the idea of, can you see me? Because it, you know, your changing experience with that comes out in your songs, you know? Accidentally or on purpose, it's part of who you are. It's interesting how, for me at least, how the timing works on all of that too. You know, I, I got that Recovering the Satellites record back here. Maybe that's my all-time favorite record. I don't know. Maybe. It, it could be. It could be. It's it, This is the anniversary year, I know, for something like that. And, I, you know, looking back at a lot of those songs with these songs. But with I'm Not Sleeping, with Have You Seen Me Lately, with a lot of those that would go on to be uh, talked about by a lot of bands who will, you know, associate themselves as emo. We'll, we'll say emo bands. Those are the songs they're pointing to that said, this is what made our scene. I couldn't see yeah. that then, but I'm, I'm sure you're aware of that. There have been these tribute albums by these emo bands. What was it like kind of seeing it take off in that direction? Well, it was really strange at the time because I thought we'd become kind of, in a lot of critics' eyes and a lot of the sort of, we'd become kind of a joke to a lot of people in the, whatever you want to call it, the cognoscenti about music, you know, like pow people, but not to musicians. Like to musicians, we were a deeply important band and... I remember before I knew Chris hearing about like reading interviews with Chris Caraba, you know, when he's, when the first few dashboard records came out and how uh, declarative he was about how important we were, how important angels of the silences was to him. And uh, at a time when it wasn't really cool 
to be a fan of our band. He was he was very vocal about it. Bands like Between the Buried and Me, uh, I remember on one of the tribute albums, uh, Panic at the Disco. Um, and those guys always really talking about the playing rock and roll with the real emotionality, not necessarily with with earnestness, not with uh, cynicism or sarcasm, and, and how much they, how deeply influenced they were for it. But it came at a time when a lot of people just didn't feel that way about our band and didn't respect the band at all. I really remember reading, uh, it was in like alternative press, and reading this whole, it was one article about Dashboard, and the on there was a big sidebar article in the article that said, do we all have it wrong about Counting Crows? You know, like everybody thinks Counting Crows is a joke, but Chris Caraba won't stop talking about Counting Crows. Do we all have it wrong about Counting Crows? Do we need to re-examine this stuff? And I was like, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah I think so. But, you know, yeah, so that was always, you know, uh, you know, but I know there's a difference between musicians and everybody else, too. I understand. I've always known that, like rock and roll and music in general is is our personal cool. You know, we wear it on T-shirts, literally wear it on T-shirts. We Not just our hearts on our sleeves. Sunflower Bean's a great band, by the way. Fellow New Yorkers, I, I love those guys. They're so <laughs> good. Julia is a genius. Um, but, you know, it, it is a big part of how we define ourselves. And as a result of that, how we define ourselves as being different from those guys over there. I rock, you suck. And you suck and you listen to that. So I rock, so I don't. But musicians aren't that way. They just tend to like music. They tend to be really geeky about music. Musicians are always former music geeks. Sometimes I think critics are music geeks who grow up and become football players. <laughs> they become the jocks who pick on the uh, the music geeks. But, you know, I, so yeah, that was pretty clear to me that we were a pretty big influence. You know, and there's still a bunch of my closest friends are other musicians. You know, that's one of the reasons I love putting on Underwater Sunshine Festival because it, it brought me back to having a peer group we all do these people understand me because we do the same thing you know me like uh sean my friend sean barna uh matt susich uh chris caraba dave leal pepe from gang of youths we pass stuff back and forth we sit around and talk to each other we sing on each other's records maria taylor you know i mean we the the festival has been great that way for me it's been like and, and the Outlaw Roadshow before that, because it really brought me back in touch with a lot of musicians, because you have that when you're starting out, but you really lose it, unless you want to go to the MTV Awards or the Grammys, and I'm not really, it's not my bag. Um, you just don't have that peer group anymore. So getting that back was great for me. Um, and I, I, I love that. I love, I've sung on a ton of records in the last few years, but they're almost all just friends of mine, you know, and, and they're brilliant, but some of them are, like Chris, are famous, and others aren't. Leo Pepe, Dave may be becoming very famous because, I mean, they're already the biggest band in Australia. They open for the Foos over here. I, I'm really hoping they blow up because they're I've the best rock and roll band. I've seen them a few times. They're fantastic. Yeah, that's the yeah. best rock and roll band I've seen in a decade. They're so good. I went over and sang all this stuff on their new record when I was, when I was, in, London, when I was in England during that time because he and I are very, very close. And I sang on, I don't know, four songs, maybe three or four songs, and then they trashed the whole thing. They want to start over. So I'm like, okay, well, just save the space because I'm going to be back. As soon as I can travel, I'm going to be back. I want to go to the farm, but I'm definitely coming to sing on the Gang of Youth record. So you want to be a rock and roll star? No? Well, how about a podcast star? Well, as it turns out, there's a new all-in-one platform just for you. It's called Anchor, and it's the easiest way to make a podcast. And check this out. It's free. 
There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And then Anchor will distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify and Apple Podcast and, you know, everywhere else in, uh, in podcast land. And what's even better, you can actually make money from your podcast. Go figure. Uh, no minimum listenership on that. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So go ahead. Download the free Anchor app right now or go to anchor.fm to get started. So what are you waiting for? Podcast stardom is within your reach. Oh, I do want to mention one more thing. It's really important to me because Dave Drago is a big part of this record. He, my friend Dave Drago used to be in a band that was in the Outlaw Roadshow called Tallahassee, but he has a studio up in Rochester called 1809 Studios, and he produced Sean Barna's record Sissy, which I sang on a few years ago, and I was blown away by the background vocals he did on it and how cool and glam they were. They really reminded me of like those Matahupa records and the Bowie stuff, like Hunky Dory era stuff and Ziggy Stardust. And I, I just loved his composition and his singing. And when we finished that first bunch of recording, Immer and I put a few background vocals on it. We didn't have anything really great. We had, well, actually, not true. We had a few things that were really cool, but we didn't have something that brought the record to life the way I wanted it to. And so when I'd been stuck at home for about a month, I, I called Dave and said, hey, I'm going to send you this new record. It's not finished yet, but I want you to write and sing for it. And, we, and I'll send you, I sent him all the stems after that. And we spent the next like month, you know, sometime in May maybe, or early June, passing ideas back and forth over the phone and over Zoom. And he sings about 90 to 95% of the background vocals on this record. We finished them all over that break. That's one thing we could do, and we did them. And I think they're out of this world. It's it, it's a big part of making this record what I dreamed about it being was him really coming through on his composition, the writing of those background vocals, and the singing of them. Like he it he just did incredible stuff, more than we needed. We had to tone it back because there was like twelve part harmonies. We had to pull them back some. And it, when I say considering uh, Angels of Angel of Fourteenth Street that we pulled them back some, you could just imagine where that was at one point. Cause it was a C it was really, I mean, he just did great work. And uh, we're actually working on another record right now. He and I, Immer uh, to Sean Barna's new record, which is incredible. We're just trying to finish it right now. Immer plays on it a bunch, bass and guitar. Uh, I sing on it a bunch, like three or four different songs. It's, it's really cool. Yeah, it's interesting. Um that uh background vocal thing the timing my next interview it's tomorrow it's with jacob dylan it's the 25th anniversary of oh, yeah. bringing down the horse too you know he's got his new record with the wallflowers but i thought and there you are singing on everybody's record you know <laughs> well I, I really love doing it you know i kind of was that's what i was doing in dave bryson's studio he had a studio called dancing dog in in berkeley or emeryville actually in a warehouse and one of the ways i got friends with a lot of musicians back then was uh i i would i would sing background vocals on people's records when we were just starting out in the Himalayans and then later in Counting Crows. That's how I ended up in Sorted Humor in that band. Uh, that's how I met, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Ever, not Everclear. Um, yeah, Everclear. Art Alexakis. Because uh, he had a band called uh, Colorfinger, I think. Mm-hmm. And I sang mm-hmm. on his record back in early 90s, you know, uh, 91 maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've always really, I love like make being that thing that makes some other piece of music just pop, you know? And uh, some of my proudest moments in music are like that one I did with Nancy Griffith, uh, going back to Georgia, the Wallflowers one's great. The Chris Car- the one on Dashboard Confessional, the So Long, So Long, that's one of my favorite background vocals I've ever done. Uh, 
or that one my friend Matt Susich his new record I don't know if you've heard that it's he's like great New York folk songwriter he's like the modern Paul Simon he's so good and he has a song I sang on three or four songs on this record but he has a song called I Don't where it's kind of like a duet and it's beautiful you know and uh yeah, it's really cool. I'd love that stuff. I'd love singing background vocals. I'll have to check that. Uh, I'll quickly ask, just for my own geek dreams, is there a deluxe edition of this ever happening, like the, uh, like the August collection? Yes, I think so. It has been a struggle. I've tr been trying to do this for about 15 years, ever since the 10th anniversary, because we did a ton of stuff on that record. Not extra tracks, but we filmed all this stuff. The, uh, Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris, who made Little Miss Sunshine, filmed a little document, a mini documentary on us while we were recording. Josh Taft, who made the video for Alive for Pearl Jam, filmed the very first concert when we did that record and the video for Angels of Silences. Uh, so we have that. Then we did the Storytellers and the Live at the Ten Spot, which were both filmed. So we've had this package that could be a really cool deluxe package. And I'm not kidding when I tell you it's been almost 20 years I've been trying to get this stuff from Geffen, and they just made this excuse or that excuse. Now, I know for a fact that they lost the master tapes a long, long time ago before the fire. They had already lost the master tapes to satellites. They're gone. Oh, wow. But then it, this fire happened and it seemed like they might have lost everything and just not told any of us. But recently they've been sort of hinting that they think they have a lot of things and they'll get them all for us. They haven't produced anything yet, but they say they're doing it. And it seems like they, they're saying it differently than they have in the past. So one of the only thing that's held that back from having deluxe edition is the complete failure of our record company to keep any of it um so uh <laughs> we're trying to find out because i would really like to put that out it would be a deluxe edition based in a bunch of film stuff as opposed to extra tracks because they weren't really well the extra tracks are definitely gone because that was all lost but we'll see i don't know i, I we are really trying to we are really trying to get that together because but i've been trying to do that since the 10th anniversary the 15th the 20th now it's 25 it's been a lot of years of the record company, I mean, as a, and we all know now there was this huge fire that they didn't right. tell us about for a long time. So it's impossible to know how much was lost. We're trying to find out. It could just be that they don't have anything filed away organized because it does seem like there's a problem with that in those record companies. They don't care about that. <laughs> So sad yeah. to hear those extra tracks are gone, but uh, just the same. Uh, like I said, I love that you know that that era and that album. I mean, I love them all, but especially that. I'll I'll pay. I'll shill. Whatever. Whatever you want to do. I'm there. <laughs> well, I, I you know, I'd like to. In the meantime, congratulations. Pulling it back into Thank the you. present here with with Butter Miracle Sweet One. It's so good, Adam. It's so good. I can't Thank wait to so hear much. what comes uh, for Sweet Two, through Thirteen. And all the ones after that. <laughs> thank you for taking the time to talk about it, man. Oh, man, thank you. I'm so glad to talk to someone who's heard it. This is the best part of my day. Absolutely. Thank you. Awesome. Really. Take care. Uh, and hopefully we'll get to talk on the, uh, on the next one, too. All right. Thanks, man. All right. See you. Bye. Bye. Now, the last time Adam and I spoke was all the way back in 2012. We got to talk about curating the uh, Outlaw Roadshow, uh, blood-sucking, medications, covers, the new material at that point, and, uh, and a whole lot more. So I'm going to add that in here. Part 2, Kyle Meredith with Adam Duritz of the Counting Crows. How you doing? You're on the, uh, the Outlaw Roadshow. It's a busy day. <laughs> we were just talking off camera. Like, this really is kind of... It's not your entire creation, but you're... I mean, you have been overseeing so much of this already. Well, me and Ryan Spaulding, who runs Ryan Smashing Life blog, and we sat down together and found bands we wanted to tour with. A lot of them have played on the Outlaw Roadshow, you know, in one of our showcases before. And uh, 
planned out a tour. And I, I you know, went through it and handpicked all the venues because I kind of wanted a little different venue. I wanted a place that, not just the normal cookie cutter sheds, I wanted a little smaller because, you know, we're not depending on any other bands to, to sell them tickets on this tour, really. So right. I wanted a little smaller, but also because I wanted you to be able to, like, I wanted the audience to get into the bands. I wanted a place that was more fun to play and also fun to see a show at. So I kind of went through everything that was suggested by our agents and looked them up online and looked at the pictures of the place. And you don't, you can't see everything all the time, but but you can see some stuff, you know. And you can read comments too, what people say about going to shows. It worked out pretty well too. I mean, our kind of model was the Greek Theater in Berkeley and Red Rocks, right. you know, places that are sort of unique, right, right, right. different, a little more, a little smaller than like the fifteen thousand, like seven to ten thousand, and and just. Uh, have a little unique sort of sensibility about them. Uh, and they're, you know, we found them all over the country. We should say we're at the Iroquois Amphitheater here in Louisville too. Yeah. And, and I guess what is amazing about all of that is, at this point in a lot of musicians' career, you say, right, tour, put me through the machine, whatever. But you, I mean, you saying you handpicked all of these venues and well, actually I mean, did all the homework and, and, and I mean, on and on. That's, no, it's impressive. You know, it's kind of like, I think in a way, I'm not sure it's true that, well, the longer you go on, it'd be easy to say you take care of it, but the longer you've been around doing this, the more you know not to do that kind of. Right. I mean, if you really want to have a, enjoy yourself or have anything that's not just a huge headache, it's best not to just leave it, too, unless you know everyone working with you is completely on top of it. But I, mean, I know our crew is completely on top of it. Yeah. But you know, I'd say our agents were really good about finding the kind of places I was looking for um, and being understanding when I said no to places. You, you, you're introducing these cool bands. You know, a lot of band, a lot of people haven't heard a lot of these bands. I mean, uh, even two of the bands on this bill, I, I knew Good Old War, but you know, I didn't know Foreign Fields or Filigar. But uh, so, do you use the bands to uh, to help get the word out, or do you also hope to suck a little bit of their marrow out for your own spirit? But yeah, I mean, I don't know. The thing is, we're an independent band now too. So, educating people about going to places where independent music is played, you know, the day trotters, the different blogs, the world about looking online for things as opposed mm -hmm. to just on the radio. Mm -hmm. Um, it's going to help us too, right? Because, and then you know, of course, there's the ritual blood sucking of just like taking their spirit, <laughs> their souls, and stealing it. I saw Madonna her, you know, do that once on uh, on television. You know? More than once, I'm sure. <laughs> um, she said that. Um, no, there's um, it, there, it has been a little while now between records, between Saturday night, Sunday mornings, and now, and it feels like a lot's happened, and then it also feels like nothing has happened. I guess from the fans' point of view, from you know looking out, um, I guess I just read a recent interview. You were talking about this whole med problem that you run. You're coming off of these prescription pills. Well, Did that play a part of, of just taking time between records? Well, probably somewhat. Although, actually no, because when I was doing that was right when we were making the record and I was oh. working on the play. It was all happening exactly the same time, so it was busy. I mean, you know, there were, I've had a lot of troubles with mental illness and for a while there it was just necessary to have me on a bunch of these medications mm -hmm. just to be able to cope, sure. to be safe. But, you know, they don't want me to stay on that stuff forever and so last year, a lot of it's for people who are bipolar, which I'm not. Mm -hmm. um, but they were probably making it kind of safe. Uh, but then, uh, you know, sort of got another consultation and someone said, you know, probably, I can see why you might have been on these meds at one point, but they're not going to let you get better. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to help you write, because they're, you know, they, they're very bad with creativity and memory. Right. Well, Two that things that you kind of use. Like, so, how do you write? You know, yeah. You're writing on them and then you're writing off of them, and so there is a big difference. Uh, I don't know. but. Apparently it's not easy to write on them, and I wasn't having an easy time writing for a while there. But, but last year I mean, actually did, I mean, we did a covers album, but that's because I was working on the play, too. Mm -hmm. I was working on this theater piece, so I did a lot of writing for that. So, I mean, I, it wasn't really like I took a year off songwriting there. I, I was really working writing, but we are just not for County Crows. Mm -hmm. um, and it was too hard to think about writing for two different things at the same time. Mm -hmm. We recorded in, like, April and May, 
for April, and then we went back and recorded in June, and then July or August I went and did the theater piece. Mm -hmm. So I mean, it's all in the midst of the worst of all this stuff. Sure. Was right when I was doing all this, uh, going through all the med stuff, right when we were doing all the work. Too, Probably so. not a bad idea that you did a covers record then. That it ended up like that. Well, I mean, it, it was a covers record or not do one because I, I don't even think in the best of times I could write for two separate things at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's too hard to write. How would you decide what goes where? You sure. Know? sure. Um, so you know, I was just doing the theater piece. I could. That's why we did the covers album so we could still mm -hmm. keep working. I mean, well, I'm surprised we got any of it done at all because I was a wreck, you know. But I think sometimes when you're like that, it's good to focus on stuff. Sure. So I think the work was probably really good. So is there a point we can expect another originals record? Is that also in the work, yeah. or is that still down the road? Well, I mean, it's not today. It's not today. I'm, I mean, I'm not really big on. <laughs> Did you bring that in? Yeah. yeah, just like working this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> all the reams of free time we got. Man, what a um, scoop! Well, I mean, I'm sure we'll make one. I, yeah. I don't. I never really know we're gonna make a record tour when we go and do it because mm -hmm. there's not much planning that goes into that. I mean, there, well, there is just I guess nowadays trying to, but we've been doing that all year long. We've been looking into places to set up our studio because right. we have we kind of own all the equipment ourselves mm -hmm. since our second record. We never made records in studios until the second record, so we're just kind of looking for some spaces to like have running all the time so we can record really cheaply because yeah. uh, we have everything. Might as well do it that way. But that's been ongoing. Yeah, one of the most interesting things about your style of songwriting is it does feel it's really autobiographical. I mean, you, you, you put a lot into it. Yeah. Um, or at least it's been written a lot about like that. Anyway, no, I'm mean, sure. Speculation. I mean, it's not necessarily like a diary. It's all about how I feel about things. Not yeah. necessarily. It's not like everything's a true story. I and mean, if all you do is write what happened, well, it would just you have to just go lead an adventurous life and then write about it. But I mean, it, it definitely is about how I feel about things. Yeah. I don't feel the need to make it be. And then at three o'clock. Well, no, does it ever get just too personal where you write something and you're like, you know what, that is way too personal that I either have to cloak it or I have to just, n I don't want that out there. No, not really. I think that uh, the closest it comes to anything like that is probably, well, to me that would always be a plus in the writing. The more personal it was, the more revealing it was, that would seem like a better song. Yeah. It would seem like a better song then <laughs> when we were recording it. It would be when you'd have to go out and play it every night. That, Right. You might not feel like doing that every night. Yeah. But you know, have you ever regretted a few of the songs that you end up having to go out and you're like, oh man. No, it's I more don't just like this. this. It can be kind of if you're not in the right frame of mind, you really have to scrape it out of yourself with mm -hmm. our songs because there's a lot in them. Uh, and that can be that was sort of a nightmare when the meds were when I was having trouble with the meds because it was I couldn't necessarily access the feelings and so I'd have to go in there and like scrape it out. It's like working sure. out without having eaten. Sure. You sort of feed on yourself and that's pretty unpleasant. And the more unpleasant the song, the worse that is. Um, uh, but not really. I mean, I don't really get tired of any of our songs too much because if I don't want to play a song, I'm just more likely not to play it. Especially after 20 years. Like, you just don't want to play the same thing over and over again for 20 well, yeah, years. 20 years in, though, and, and especially even now, I think with the name The Outlaw Roadshow on tagged onto this, it makes me kind of wonder do you see yourself as an entertainer or a traveling salesman? <laughs> Well, I don't know. I suppose it's a little well, bit of both. Or is that exclusive? Or either one, are, are those exclusive? Well, it's you know, it's still just like being in a band. I suppose you know. Look, I mean, there's definitely. A, I think you owe people things. I'm just not sure it's what they think you owe them. Like, I think you owe people the show every night, right. and you owe it a certain quality. I don't think you owe them. I think that's what I think you owe them. You owe them the best possible show every night. And to me, the best way to do that is to not be playing stuff that I don't want to play, mm -hmm. because then I think you're. It might be fine for some people, but I'm not good at it. When I don't want to play a song, I'm not great at playing it. I'm really good at it when I really want to play it. And then it's like, it's very emotional. Um, but I don't feel like I owe anybody like specific songs on a given night, and I've got too many songs to worry too much about that. Because um, it just seems like, 
well, that's just not who we are. We've been real clear about it from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people come. I heard someone, you know, mostly, strangely, we don't get any much complaints about it anymore. I think I've read about three or four tweets this tour from people who just did object to us not playing around here some night or object to us not playing uh, Mr. Jones. Right, right. But mostly not. Somebody, like, I, somebody made a comment. Those fringe on, fans. Well, I just think they're fans, you know, they just, but then maybe they haven't seen a bunch of shows. Yeah. Not necessarily fringe, just like they're expecting something different. Mm -hmm. You know, because, you know, if you're going to see a lot of bands and they all do it the other way, I can see why you'd expect that, you know, and uh, I don't really object to it, I'm just not necessarily going to do it. Sure. <laughs> you know, but, uh, sure. but somebody wrote on, on, a Twitter, on a Twitter thing last tour, uh, you know, he was annoyed that we didn't play it, and he said, remember what got you here. But I wrote back to him, and I'm like, you know what, the truth is, what got us here after 20 years is always playing good shows right. and always playing what we want to play on stage is how we do that. Mr. Jones didn't get us here. Mm -hmm. Mr. Jones didn't even get us there in the first place. Round here did. Because Round here is the one we played on Saturday Night Live mm -hmm. first, and that's what we played on Letter. Right and that's when we blew, blew ourselves up. Mr. Jones was a, we weren't in the top 200 before that. Yeah. So, so, I mean, to that extent, Mr. Jones is a, a, a song I absolutely love that's, you know, was a radio hit. But radio isn't the be all end all center of culture. And we're here 20 years later because people want to come see the right. show and all that. Ways we ruin our songs, if you want to call it that. No, I like uh, everything we mess around with. You, you mentioned the radio hits too. Uh, that's another inter interesting thing about your career because you guys, you know, if you do take some years between records, you know, you kind of come in and out of the public consciousness, I guess. But you usually do come back every now and then with a big radio hit, and that's got to be something new for a generation. But does it feel different every time? Like when you come back and, um, I mean, you, you know, you had to hit with the cover with Big Yellow Taxi, and that was, you know, few years after the last one and everything like that. Does it feel different when a hit actually comes through at this point? No, it feels exactly the same every time, which is kind of peripheral and like I didn't have anything to do with it. Yeah. I mean, honestly, because I don't really listen to the radio very much, so I kind of don't care what song it is. And for years, I sort of let the record like, label do it. I mean, I was the one who insisted on Mr. Jones as opposed to they wanted Murder of One. They didn't want Mr. Jones as a single. It's interesting. So, but show me right now on the line. <laughs> they don't necessarily know everything they're doing over there. Um, you know, I was right about that one. Right, right. Although not because I thought it was a big hit, I just thought it was a good introductory song. Mm -hmm. But I think I was right about that. It actually, what, that's what it did. It, it introduced the public to us, opened them up in a way, and then we went on and played around here and crushed. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what we did. But, you know, it, it's just so freakish when it happens. I mean, we had a hit with Oxenley Love. Mm -hmm. I love that song. It's a great song. But it's a hit because that's a massive, massive movie. Sure. You know, and the other well, one... But it doesn't hurt that it's a catchy song. No, it's not, I mean, if it was a terrible, but you know what, terrible songs get on the air too, often because they're catchy, you know, but I mean, you can't really weigh that as a quality gauge for you. If you name it the press anyway. Sure, yeah. it's a good thing. I know people think all press is good press. I'm not a believer in yeah. that. Well, I think when you're at the receiving end of it, though, maybe well, it feels a bit different. Well, I don't think it's good for you either. I think that yeah. music's different from everything else because you wear music, like, not only like your clothes, mm -hmm. But you do wear it as your clothes. Sure, sure. But I mean, you wear music like your personal cool in a way you don't with anything else. Mm -hmm. Not with fine arts, not with movies. You don't go back to them over and over again. You don't talk about them with your friends. Mm -hmm. You don't like, uh, it's not, it's part of the scene you're in. It's, there's so many ways in which music is a part of your personal cool. So negatives of music, I don't think are good. I think they're really bad. Um, but whatever, it doesn't, time passes. There's no way to escape it your whole career. Sure. It happens with everything. Sure. You know, it's because it's the, the culture is much more around. Gossip than it is around music most of the time, unfortunately. And you've lived through plenty, plenty of that. Both, yeah. Mostly so imaginary, true. but yeah. <laughs> my, my love life and the imagination of, of the press. Oh, it's got to be nice not, singing the not being in the tabloids as much these days, so that's. Well, yeah, I mean, I didn't do most of the stuff that got me in in the first place, but uh, 
So but the legend is great. Out. You float in, you float out. <laughs> people's imaginations. Well, always. it's great to see you guys doing so well, especially independently these days. Underwater yeah, sunshine. That's fun. You know, just seeing you guys actually have fun like that. So stretching out. That's another reason we're not on tablets. We can pick and choose exactly how we want to be, yeah. where we want to be all the time. And the, the outlets that we talk to, I mean, it's a lot less likely with you than it is with mm -hmm. even Rolling Stone, which right. is much more of a gossip mag than it used to be. Cool. You know, it's a nice thing about this world is that you can just choose where you go to. Yeah. You can pick your friends. Much nicer. Well, appreciate you picking this one. Thank Taking you. some time today, Adam. Thank you. Appreciate it. My thanks to Adam Duritz, Counting Crows. The new one is called Butter Miracle Sweet Volume 1. Thanks to you for checking out this episode. Again, please do hit that subscribe button before you get out of here at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, Podchaser, NPR, or YouTube, where you'll find the video version of this as well. Then after that, head over to WFPK.org. It's where I do a show Monday through Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern. An hour full of song premieres, music news, anniversary spins, bonus interviews. Monday through Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern at WFPK.org. Consequence has your music and film news. You can also find me on the social media spots, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all three of them, at Kyle Meredith. TikTok at KyleMeredith81. Like and follow along. Say hi when you do. That does it for another edition of Kyle Meredith. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network. It's easy to hear your favorite artist on WFPK from wherever you are. Listen on your smart speaker, live stream from our website at WFPK.org from Louisville Public Media.